new video posted on Tyree Nichols' Facebook page. He's dancing to Footloose. He's singing along, he's holding a cigarette, and the sun is shining behind him. He looks happy and kind of goofy. Tyree was a beautiful person. He loved to take pictures. He liked to go see the sunset. And most of all, he loved his mother and he loved his son. Tyree Nichols was a 29-year-old skateboarder, photographer, and FedEx employee who was driving on January 7th in the evening and pulled over for reckless driving, although uh, the police haven't offered uh, any video proof of the reason for the stop. And the video that we've seen that's been since released to the public uh, last week shows officers approaching his car, demanding that he exit the vehicle, forcing him to the ground, and after a struggle, Tyree escapes, and they catch up with him um, several blocks down the road as he's running towards his mother's home. This is Robert Klemko. He covers criminal justice and police reform for The Post. At one point in the pursuit, several minutes later, they catch up with him, and a handful of officers, all of them black, uh, beat him with batons, kicks, punches, Um, At one point, an officer tees up a kick to his face while he's on the ground. Uh, At another point, an officer uh, swings punches at him as he's being restrained while standing. And um, after several minutes, uh, this lasts about three or four minutes, uh, he's handcuffed. And um, the officers then begin fist-bumping each other. That happened on January 7th. Uh, On January 10th, uh, Nichols died. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Kim Belware. It's Monday, January 30th. Today, we talk about the death of Tyree Nichols and the conversation unfolding in Memphis about policing and institutional racism. Memphis Police Department, um, led by Police Chief Sarah Davis, uh, the first black female police chief in the city's history, took action to fire uh, five officers involved. And an investigation was launched by the Shelby County District Attorney using the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation as uh, investigators rather than the local authorities. And the Department of Justice launched a, a civil rights investigation uh, into Nichols's arrest and subsequent death. The officers were then charged last week with second-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, aggravated assault in concert with other people, official misconduct, and official suppression. Uh, and then that same uh, week, on Friday night, the videotape was released uh, to the world. This timeline that you're describing seems just a lot more swift than in other cases of police brutality that have happened in the past. What do you think's been different about how Tyree's case has been handled? You know, it's 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 very different. It's very uncommon for um, a police force to release a video like this, one that they know is going to create a public uproar, you know, within weeks uh, of an incident. Uh, often it takes 
months uh, or or even more than more than a year uh, to release a video like this. And and a lot of times, police jurisdictions, cities use the justification that the investigation into the officer's actions is still ongoing, um, so they can't release any video. In this case, once the officers were charged um, and had been interviewed and arrested, the city felt that it had enough evidence to to go forward and that the release of the videotape wouldn't wouldn't damage the process or 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 uh, damage the their chance of a conviction in any way. You know, the argument can be made that cities around the country who say that they're withholding video um, in order not to jeopardize a case against police officers are are actually using that as an excuse for their desire to quell public unrest over the issue. So why do you think the response from the police department has been so different this time around? Well, I think, um, you know, obviously we're living in a post-George Floyd world and a lot of people are looking to solutions for um, the unrest and the violence um, that we saw after George Floyd around the country. This specific uh, police chief, Sarah Davis, was one of the loudest voices for reform after Floyd. She was a police chief in Durham, North Carolina at the time. Uh, I spoke to her this week and, and she told me that, um, you know, she would have felt like a hypocrite if she hadn't acted swiftly in this case after talking about uh, police reforms and how police need to behave in these scenarios for, for years. Chiefs around the country should move quickly when these things happen because we always talk about we want our communities to trust us. They will never trust us if we don't treat officers like we treat citizens when they commit egregious acts. So I thought it was very important to me to be true to and not be a hypocrite, you know, about it. Mm-hmm. And the egregious nature, this family deserved justice. Mm-hmm. And they deserve swift justice. So the footage of Tyree's traffic stop and this really brutal beating were released a few days ago. What's been the result of the footage being made public, and how have activists in the Memphis community responded to this? You know, it's interesting. One of the things that a lot of folks expected uh, once this video was released, you know, even President Biden warned about it and had a meeting with mayors across the country about it, there was physical rioting and, and violent unrest expected. And I think that that has a lot to do, or that had a lot to do with just sort of the graphic nature of the video. Um, everybody who saw it before it was publicly released um, asked for nonviolent protests. The family um, specifically really begged folks uh, for nonviolent protests. And then we didn't really see violent protests. You know, there were scattered arrests across the country. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think one of them is that there was such decisive action taken against the officers uh, before the release of the video. You know, after Floyd, um, the police had in many ways tried to cover up what they had done. There had been no charges uh, for the officers and and the video was, was you know, almost immediate. It was bystander video. In this case, there was really nothing to protest for in terms of immediate action. You know, obviously there's this larger issue of, of police reform but that, that wasn't something that, that you know, really motivates a lot of would-be demonstrators in 2023. I think the other big factor is that all of these officers are black. Um, and you know, while you know, we can have an academic conversation about 
um, institutional racism in policing and, and um, how the structure of police departments and, and modern policing is, you know, oppressive towards minorities and uh, people of color. That is not something that gets people out of bed and gets people up on a Saturday morning uh, to a protest. And so I think that, you know, the fact that these officers were black took the wind out of a lot of folks' sails and, and, and created, specifically in communities of color, this feeling of sorrow um, as opposed to anger. Yeah, can you say more about that? How does the fact that the officers were black change the dynamic here? It forces a lot of us to have uncomfortable conversations because one of the things that people demanded uh, after Minneapolis was that you know they wanted police departments to look more like the communities they policed. You know, people wanted more diversity in the department, and the feeling has long been that um, black officers, Hispanic officers, will not act brutally towards people of color. And while the research bears that out to a degree, the difference is marginal. What we know is that the better predictor for whether an officer will use uh, unjustified brutality is actually gender. Uh, And the best predictor for whether an officer will use brutality is the race of the victim. Last week in Memphis, I spoke with Tyree Nichols' mother, Rovan Wells, she said the race of the officers added a layer of sorrow to the whole thing. It's just bad all the way around. And for it to be by black officers, yes, it makes it even harder to swallow. Because they were black. And they know what we have to go through being black already. So I don't understand why they had to do this to my son. And there's another aspect in all of the media coverage that this has received. How has the race of the police officers factored into the way Tyree Nichols' killing has been covered, especially by conservative media? I think you see in conservative media circles, um, folks making specific note of the officer's race in an effort to undermine this idea that systemic racism exists in policing. Um, One of the more notable examples over the weekend was uh, you had Jason Whitlock, the sports columnist and culture commentator on Tucker Carlson's show saying that, you know, this looked like gang activity and this is what happens um, when you have a single black mother uh, running a police department. Never mind that Davis is married, but it's just all very transparently racist. For a lot of conservative commentators, this incident helped them advance the notion that black America's problems are the result of black Americans, uh, not any sort of outside influence. How has the perspective of police reform advocates changed since George Floyd's murder? I think that After Floyd, and in the immediate aftermath of Floyd, and the several other cases that got a lot of attention that year, activists around the country really focused their attention on prosecution for officers, uh, the officers involved, and making examples of them, and showing police officers around the country that this is what happens when you use unjustified force. 
And then I think that that movement has grown up in a lot of ways. And now activists look at individual cases of police brutality and they would rather not focus on the officers involved. They would rather everyone look at the big picture and look at sort of these structural changes to the policing model that need to need to change. Um, and so I think the frustration and the fear among a lot of activists is that, you know, everyone's sort of missing the forest for the trees and that there will be outrage about each specific police killing, but no action taken at a federal level. Uh, you know, this George Floyd Policing Act is stalled in the Senate and it doesn't seem like any one act of police brutality, no matter how brutal, is is going to move the wheels of Congress and, and sort of create that, that wide-scale change. After the break, what's changed since the murder of George Floyd in 2020? And what hasn't? We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know, Robert, it feels like we've been through this over and over. Police brutality happens. Someone is killed or seriously injured. There were protests. Repeat, repeat. And then there was George Floyd's death in 2020. And it seemed like it could be a breaking point. But this is still happening. So what have activists and police reform advocates said about why it's still happening? Well, I think people feel like um, policing is largely unregulated. And and. To an extent, that's true. There's more than 18,000 police departments across the United States, and the only laws that they're all bound to are very basic federal laws and, and, and guidelines. But there's no uniform training across the country, and incidents of police misconduct uh, are prosecuted in just a wide range of seriousness and severity. You could have two identical episodes of misconduct in, in, you know, within one part of Texas and, and then have it treated completely differently in the courts and by the prosecution uh, than in another part of Texas. So I, I think the, the frustration, the mounting frustration is that there's no one specific fix for all of this. And you know, even if the George Floyd um, bill gets passed in the Senate, there's still this cultural rot inside of a lot of police departments that that sort of bill won't be able to address. Has there been any response from lawmakers or police officials, either locally or nationally, when it comes to changing how police operate? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, every time you have one of these incidents, there are Democratic and progressive senators and, and congresspeople who get on television and say that, you know, we need to take action at a federal level. And then there are Republican um, pundits and, and senators and congresspeople who say, you know, 
policing just has a few bad apples, and we need to aggressively prosecute and weed out the bad apples um, in order to create change. So this it's this fundamental argument about whether or not policing's problem is bad apples or if it's uh, a cultural um, systemic issue within police departments. And it's it, 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 there never seems to be any progress in, in that argument. Yeah, people never seem to finish the rest of that proverb of the idea of one bad apple. I think that what's difficult about Memphis for activists is that it was already a really progressive police department in terms of its policy. After Floyd, um, they changed a number of things about the handbook. Notably, uh, they added a clause about the duty to intervene. And so police officers there are required to intervene when they see other law enforcement officers um, behaving in an illegal way. And, and I think that's part of what made it so easy for Chief Davis to fire the officers so quickly without going through a bunch of back and forth with the um, police association there. So um, the challenge there is for them to, I guess, figure out um, a way to sort of prevent this sort of thing from happening in a department that was already doing a lot of work to prevent this sort of thing from happening. And there have even been calls in the Memphis community, haven't there, about removing police from traffic enforcement interactions altogether? The conversation that they were having was about ending pretextual stops, which is essentially when officers see something they don't like about a, a vehicle, whether it's you know the driver's behavior inside the car or a number of other factors, and then they find a reason to stop that vehicle uh, based on some minor traffic infraction. There were conversations about ending that there before all this happened, and there have been those conversations all around the country. But... Um, you know, this is not an illegal practice, uh, pretextual stops. And it's something that's practiced pretty widely. Uh, and, and so banning them um, at the state level is, is going to be quite a hurdle, no matter how liberal or progressive the, the legislators are. I feel like a lot of the nuance of that idea got shaken out when defund the police became this slogan that was bigger than the idea itself. What have activists told you about what they hope will change? You know, I think one thing that we overlook is that in a lot of communities, these efforts are going on. Um, there's places all around the country that have funneled resources into, um, from police to mental health resources, you know, departments that um, send mental health professionals on wellness check calls. Um, there's been a, actually been a lot of progress in that area. I think... The big problem in perception is that, you know, we don't really write about or cover when progressive changes are going smoothly, right? We write about when uh, somebody is beaten to death in the street by five officers. You know, there's this feeling that nothing has changed, but, but Floyd has changed the world of policing in a lot of ways that we don't really talk about. Yeah, so for people who might feel some level of despair that because this keeps happening, that's an indication nothing has changed. You're saying there are some positive takeaways. There has been some progress. There has been some, yeah. Um, but I think there are a lot of folks who argue not enough and certainly not enough at the federal level, which hasn't taken on 
police reform, you know, in our lifetime, in my lifetime, certainly. Robert Klemko reports on policing for The Post. After we taped this conversation, a sixth officer was relieved of duty for his role in the incident. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. To support our journalism, please subscribe to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Kim Belware. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.